So I'm going to go ahead and just hit the ground running with some of these points. I have four main points today and then kind of a little application piece. As you can see in those sermon outline notes, that gives you a little bit of hope to know, like, okay, he's getting to his last point. You know, we're, we're kind of getting there. So, um, but if you need me to slow down or repeat any of these, make sure and let me know. So truth number one that I think that we can see in this passage, just a spiritual truth, is that a Christ follower, a disciple, a Christian, rejoices in the Lord. A Christ follower rejoices in the Lord. To continue using a word that we've been using the last few weeks, this word of posturing, a Christian has a posture of joy or rejoicing in the Lord at all times. I don't want to touch on this too much because I think we'll probably end up coming back to it later on in chapter 4 when, when Jerry preaches on that. But there's a few things I think we can really glean from today's passage and what it means to rejoice. So this word joy and rejoicing is really important to Paul. We know this because if you look in the entire book of Philippians, um, he uses the word 16 different times. So why in the world in four short chapters would he use it 16 times? Why is it so important to Paul that the Philippians, and by extension us, uh, why is it so important to him that we have joy or rejoice in the Lord? Well, I think there's many different reasons why he's trying to communicate this. So during this time, Paul writing this letter, he's actually in a Roman prison. So this is after many years of service to Jesus and suffering um, for the sake of the gospel in the name of Jesus. And now he is sitting in a Roman prison writing this letter, and yet he still has joy during this. And then he does it several times throughout this passage. If you were to look back in 1.18, you don't have to write now, but you can write it down if you want to. Um, after the, he noted that there were people preaching the gospel for wrong motives, ultimately because they wanted to do harm to Paul while he was in prison, he was able to say, well, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So even though they were doing it to harm him rather than lift up the name of Jesus, he still rejoices by the fact that Jesus' name was made great. In verse 25 in chapter 1, he said, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul believes that his life continues and his service to Jesus and the Philippians continues um, because he believed that God wanted him to help the Philippians to have their joy in the faith, to have their joy in the Lord. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So even though Paul sees himself as being poured out, literally physically, he's just giving everything that he has for the faith of these Philippians, he is still able to rejoice in these things. So through whatever is going on in his life, he's going to say in chapter 4, through whatever hardship, good or bad, is going on, he's learned to be content in all things and to have joy in the Lord. And this is what Paul wants for the Philippians and for us. So why is joy so important? Because if a Christian finds their joy in the Lord, they can face any trial in this life and be unfazed by it. And I think that's an important thing. If you have joy in the Lord, you can face literally anything, no matter how good or how bad it may seem to us in our life, you can be ultimately unfazed if your joy is in the Lord rather than in your circumstances. I think it's going to make more sense as we go throughout chapter 3 today, but Paul is able to withstand anything in life, no matter how good or how bad. And joy is really important for us in our faith. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit that is given to us when we accept Christ as Lord, and the Holy Spirit gives that to us. So it's a gift. It's not something that we have to pretend. It's not something we have to kind of muster up on our own just to muddle through life. It is already there, and it is already given to us if we're only willing to look at what Christ has done 
and to be thankful and joyful for what he has done on our behalf. Joy is presence because Christ has taken your place on the cross and he has borne your sin and your shame and he has given you his righteousness in return. Even though you had nothing to give to him for that, he still gives it to you. And so joy is present because of what Christ has done. Joy is present in the life of a believer because Jesus is resurrected and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he has promised to return for us someday. So Christians ultimately should be the most joyful people in the world. Now, that doesn't always seem to be practical for us. We are sinful people still. Um, And yet, we should be joyful because of what Christ has done. So then the questions for us are, is your life one marked by joy? If you were to honestly take a self-assessment, do you think it would be true? If you were to ask you know, a friend or a spouse sitting next to you, do you think that they would say, yeah, you're pretty joyful? Like, you know, yesterday you were not. <laughs> I don't know what my wife would say. I'm not going to ask her. Um, do you rejoice in the Lord in every season of your life, whether it's a good season or a bad season? So maybe things are going really well. Do you attribute that to God? Maybe things are going really bad. You know, maybe you've lost a job. I've done that before. Are you able to rejoice even in that moment? Or maybe you've kind of forgotten or um, have not focused on what Christ has done for you. And maybe that's why you're not currently rejoicing in the Lord despite your circumstances. So our first truth for the day is that a Christ follower should rejoice in the Lord. You guys keeping up so far? Everybody paying attention? I have to make sure students pay attention all the way throughout because sometimes you drift off. All right, so on to truth number two. So truth number two, a Christ follower places trust in Christ alone. A Christian, a disciple, places trust in Christ alone and in nothing else. So let's look back at the passage. Let's look at verses two through six. Sometimes the clicker doesn't work. Verses 2 through 6, God's Word says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul, he's making some pretty weighty points here. And we're going to end up breaking down each of these things that he's talking about, making sure that that makes sense to us. But he's really doing a lot here in this short passage. So he's referring to a specific group of people here when he starts talking about these dogs. And we're going to look at what that insult means. But specifically, he's talking to a group of people known as Judaizers. So they are, are Christian Jews that are, this, that are going to these Gentile believers, these Gentile Christians, and saying, well, faith in the gospel is not enough. You actually got to do this and this and this. You got to follow the Jewish law. And you, oh, by the way, you also have to be circumcised if you're a guy. That's what these Judaizers are doing to these Gentile Christian believers. And very much understandably, Paul is pretty well upset by this. So we want to be able to understand a few different things that's going on here and what's, what's being said and, and what they're trying to proclaim. Um, and one of the really biggest points that these Judaizers are making is that circumcision needed to be done. And you need to understand in the Jewish faith that circumcision was really, really important. So if you look back at the Old Testament from the time of God's covenant with Abraham all the way until the new covenant ushered in by Jesus, 
The circumcision was used to mark the people of God. So it meant that you were a part of the people of God. And it was a really, really important thing. And so these Judaizers are saying like, hey, you're not really a part of God's people until you are circumcised. So they were seeking to take portions of the Jewish law and force it upon the Gentiles in order to be called by the people of God. So Paul, he's arguing against this. He is saying that to expect anything more of a believer aside from belief in the gospel is something called legalism. So legalism is a works-based religion where somebody needs to continue to work for the love and the forgiveness of God on top of the gospel itself. So the issue, if you live your life this way, is that you are ultimately at some level believing that what Christ has done for you is not enough. It's almost like saying, thank you, Jesus, I appreciate what you've done, now scooch over out of the way so I can be the best person that I can be. At some level, you're not placing your full trust in the gospel in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And ultimately, it is a ludicrous way of living. That's what Paul's telling us here. But it's something that's so familiar to all of us, a trap that we fall in. I know it's one that I fall into a lot. And we need the gospel every single day to remind us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on Jesus and what he has done. But I do it all the time. I'm, I'm really good about doing a lot of really good things. Like I'm supposed to, to be a good Christian, which you know is a good thing. We're supposed to be obedient and to live the lives that God has called us to. But if we're not careful, our hearts are really deceptive. And sin makes us blind to sin. And so it becomes really easy to end up doing those good things so that God will love us more or so that he will be more likely to forgive us rather than doing them already resting in the finished work of Jesus. And so that's what Paul is warning the Philippians against. That's what he's warning you and me against in today's passage. So his message is really, really clear if you start breaking things down. And so what he's doing is he's giving three insults to these Judaizers and then he's making three points about true Christ followers. And so um, you have two little boxes here. You have the legalizers, or the, the, the Judaizers, the legalists. I put those two words together. And then the true Christ followers. And so he makes three points for each. He says these um, legalists, they are dogs, evildoers, and they mutilate the flesh, which sounds pretty bad. And then he says of those that are truly following Jesus and resting in the gospel, they are circum the circumcision of the hearts, they worship God by the Spirit, and they place no confidence in the flesh. So Paul's got some strong words here. And I want to break down some of these real quick for you, just so that way it makes a little bit more sense. So this term dogs is actually a really, really harsh insult to these people. And it may not sound like it too much to ourselves, but he, when he's talking about dogs, he's not talking about your happy-go-lucky dog, like the Tyrannese dog Reese, who just loves life and loves everybody, and like his big tail's wagging all the time and knocking stuff down, right? He's not talking about those kind of a dog. Um, what he's talking about when he says dogs, he's talking about like a third-world country um, where, where dogs are not really pets because people don't have you know, the time or, or the ability to provide for an animal because you're providing for yourself and for your family. I've experienced this before. I, spent, uh, I went on a short mission trip to, to Liberia one time in college, and so I saw these kind of dogs that are just kind of roaming the streets, and they're looking for whatever food they can find. And I remember one night I was woken up in the middle of the night because these dogs were fighting it out over some scraps of food. And it scared me to half to death. And so these are the kind of dogs that he is talking about. He's saying to these Judaizers, he's saying that you are dogs. And what makes it even more of an insult is that for a lot of Jews, they would call Gentiles dogs because they were not the people of God. So that previous insult towards Gentiles, Paul has turned right back around on them. And he's saying, these are the dogs. 
Now, if you were um, a person during this time period, you're like, man, Paul is bringing out the big guns. He is really going to town on these people. But not only that, he calls them evildoers, people whose works and efforts are focused on evil things. He's just continuing to heap it on here. So they're not focused on the things above, like Scripture tells us. They're focused on the things below. So what they were doing was they were focusing on their own efforts at some level to save them or to make sure they're extra safe, so to speak. And they wanted everybody else to see how holy they was and better than other people that they were. So they are evildoers. They are doing evil things. And not only that, but Paul says that they mutilate the flesh. And so when he says that, he's, he's kind of talking about this idea of circumcision, that they are going to these Gentile Christians saying, you had to be circumcised to be the people of God. Paul's saying, like, no, 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 these people, they're just mutilating their flesh. And again, this is going back to the circumcision, back to the Jewish life, where every Jewish male was circumcised after they were eight days old in order to signify they were the people of God. But what Paul is saying is he's saying these Judaizers have forgotten the purpose of circumcision because then it becomes focused on an outward thing, a physical thing, something that physically can make sure that we're safe and okay with God. They've forgotten that the purpose is on the heart. They were finding their, their salvation, in a sense, through being circumcised. They were saying, okay, I'm circumcised, I'm a Christian Jew, I'm okay, I'm good to go with God. And so he's giving all these insults to them. And then he's turning around saying, like, a true Christ follower, these, these other people, the, they are these three things. And so he talks about the Philippian church, those um, that are the true circumcision. And so here he's talking about a circumcision of the heart, where a believer places their trust in God and God alone. I know those are really small, hard to see, but I'm going to read them to you. Don't worry about it, and you can jot them down if you want to. But if you were to look back at the Old Testament, there's actually multiple places where it is prophesied that God will one day circumcise hearts. I promise, I made that as big as I could on my computer screen. It was huge, but that's okay. So one place you can see this is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. In Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 32, 40 says, I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from them for doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. And finally, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, it says, God says, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh. And so the focus then is on a circumcision of the heart, a cutting away of the stone, cold, dead flesh, that we once were before Jesus, and giving us a new heart and new flesh. So to be a Christ follower means that your heart has been circumcised. You no longer have a stone heart, a dead heart, but you are a new creation with a new heart, given new passions, new desires for the glory of God and to follow Him. And so this is what Paul says when he says that they are the circumcision, meaning spiritually, internally, we have been circumcised, and there is no longer any need to be physically circumcised in order to be of the people of God, because when you come to faith in Jesus, you are now internally a part of the people of God. 
He also goes on to say that um, true Christ followers are those that worship by the Spirit of God. So this worshiping by the Spirit of God that he's talking about is an inner worship. Okay, so what he's doing throughout this entire passage is he's highlighting how focus on the physical aspect is not good because that will not save you. It's an internal reality that saves us because of what Christ has done. And so this is the opposite of worship attested by the Judaizers. The Old Testament worship, it was focused on worship in specific places and specific times and specific ways. You even had to do certain things to prepare yourself physically to be able to truly worship God. That's what was necessary before Jesus and so for the Judaizers, they were still placing their, their faith or their focus on these outward physical realities, even for worship. They weren't truly worshiping for the, from their hearts. But this is not what Paul says is true for, for true Christ followers. He says we worship God by the Spirit of God, so it's an inner spiritual worship. And so now we're no longer relegated to only worship God in a church building on a Sunday morning, but instead our entire lives can become an opportunity to worship God in everything that we say and everything that we do. Paul said, or it said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And so now, because we worship God by the Spirit in our hearts, we are able to worship God in our work and the way that we treat people around us and, and what we do and the way we behave, the words that we speak. And then finally, the third thing that he says about true Christ followers is that they glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So to be a Christian means that you put your faith in nothing else other than Jesus Christ. You don't look to the law or to your own ability to make sure that you're okay or any other kind of religious rules or demands that you need to do or do this, don't do that, in order to make sure that you are safe with God and okay and that he loves you and forgives you. Because the truth is you can do nothing outside of Christ to save yourself. You can't do it. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is the reality for all of us. We all fall short of the perfect standard that God has set out for us. You cannot live up to that standard. You can't do it no matter how hard you try. That's the truth. So the only thing that we can place our faith and trust in is what Christ has done. We must look to the gospel and to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and we must believe that this is enough for us. At some level, at some point, you have to sit down and ask yourself, do I believe that what Christ has done is enough for me? You place your faith and trust in that, and that is the only thing that you can place your, your trust in, that you can boast in, is what Jesus has done. So, what does it look like for us to practically put no confidence in the flesh and instead to put our confidence in Christ? Well, I think that brings us to truth number three. A Christ follower counts everything else in life as a loss. Everything else in life as a loss. I think that's what it means to not place our faith in our, in our flesh, but instead to place it in Jesus. So again, going back to the, the passage and just looking at what, what Paul's talking about. If you were to go back and look at his list, so you, what Paul's doing is he's saying, look, I understand what these people are saying. I understand what they're doing. They're placing their confidence in the flesh, which is worthless, is what he's going to tell us. But he's like, if they think that's what they can place their faith and trust in, he's like, they've got nothing on me. My resume is way better than their resume. And that's what he goes in and he describes. So he's looking at their, their teaching, he's saying legalism is absolutely worthless. The word that he actually uses for it is, um, he essentially says that it's, it's dumb, it's crap, is what Paul is saying. 
He's like, living a life of legalism is absolutely worthless. He's like, and I know because I tried. I was there. I lived my entire life that way. And so then he goes in and lists the things that he used to place his faith and trust in and that he no longer does. He says, starting in verse 4 to go back through, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as a law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Man, what a resume. These guys have absolutely nothing on Paul. What you have to imagine is it's like you're at a dinner party or something, right? Some party, people are hanging out, and they're trying to one-up each other, right? They're like, that's nothing. Listen to what I did. And then in walks Neil Armstrong, who says, I walked on the moon. And everybody else is like, well, shoot, we, we can't beat that, right? We've got nothing on Neil Armstrong. If you walk on the moon, you can beat anybody else's story ever, right? That's essentially what Paul's doing. These guys are saying, this is what I place my faith and trust in. And then in walks Paul, and they're like, well, now we're stuck, right? We, we've got nothing on Paul. So I want to explain what each of these things kind of mean and why they were so important to these Judaizers. And then Paul says, all this is worthless. So he says he's circumcised on the eighth day. Again, going back to that, that's what that means, is that he is a a true Jewish-born male. So he was born a Jew, he was eight days old, he was circumcised, meaning he is of the people of God, he is a Jewish person. He didn't do it later on in life, that's somebody who's known as a proselyte that comes to the Jewish faith later on in life and are circumcised. It also means he's not an Ishmaelite who were circumcised when they were 13 years old instead. He is a true Jew. And not only is is, is he an Israelite, a true Jew, but Paul is of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this was also important to the Jewish people. So they, they're really good about going back and tracing where they descended from and, and why that makes them so, so good. And so the tribe of Benjamin is really important because Benjamin was um, born to Rachel. So that's uh, Jacob's one of his most loved wives. So that made it extra important. Um, Benjamin was also one of the only, of the, out of the, all the 12 patriarchs of Israel, he was the only one born in the promised land. So that made him a little bit better in Jewish eyes. The tribe of Benjamin was where the first king of Israel, King Saul, came from. And then also, after the kingdom was split into two, the tribe of Benjamin alone, out of all the others, remained true to the Davidic line and stayed with Judah. So for all these reasons, when he's saying that I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, that means out of all the 12 tribes, my tribe is the best. So that's another way that Paul has it better than some of these other people. He's also a a Hebrew of Hebrews. So what that means is he was a Hebrew, he's born a Jew, two full Jewish parents. So whenever the, the, the Jews were scattered throughout the world, some of them intermarried with other cultures and places, but both of his parents were Jews. Not only that, he worked really hard throughout his entire life to remember the Hebrew language. So that made him a little bit better. He's also a Pharisee. So the Pharisees were a select group of Jews who made it their one aim and goal in life to obey every aspect of the law. So they were the elite of the elites of the Jewish people. And not only that, but he was also so zealous in his religious beliefs, even more than some of the other Jews, that he was willing to persecute the early church. And so he would go around and seek out and to find people of the way, that's the the early Christians, the early church, and he would arrest them and throw them into prison. And even when um, Stephen was stoned by Jews, Paul was there holding their coats for them while they did it. That's how zealous he was in his faith. 
So he's like, they have, think they have something to have confidence in. He's like, really, I've got all these things over top of them, and I used to place my faith and confidence in all those things. And then on the bottom he says, all these things are lost. They are all worthless. Everything in life that, I, that got me ahead in life in, in my Jewish beliefs that I used to think was so important that any other Jew would be proud to have this resume. All these things are worthless. They are lost. So then what we need to do is, is to kind of put our place in, ourselves in this passage, so to speak. And so think for a second, like, what would your perfect resume be if you were to be the perfect person, right? So I thought about this. I came up with a funny one, a little more serious one, right? So if I were to have one of, like, man, Sam Adams is the perfect guy, I'd be Sam Adams. Maybe I'd be a doctor or something. I don't know. I'd be, like, six foot three, because that's pretty important when you're 5'7". It'd be really nice to be six foot plus, right? 200 pounds of solid muscle. My wife's laughing at me over there. Um, Dashingly handsome, devilishly charming, right? My wife and children adore me, okay? And I have more money than Jeff Bezos himself. In my spare time, I work at animal shelters and soup kitchens and all this sort of thing, right? This is Sam Adams, the perfect Sam Adams. Or maybe instead you want to make it a little bit more spiritual instead, and that's okay too. So what would your perfect spiritual self be? Maybe you would go to seminary and have all kinds of degrees and understand theology really, really well. Maybe you would have written multiple books that have helped millions of Christians worldwide to grow and deepen their faith. Maybe you have single-handedly planted more churches than Paul himself, and maybe you've memorized every verse in the Bible. Who knows? But that's essentially what's going on here, right? They are placing their faith and trust in all these things that they can do themselves. And so what does Paul say when he has finished his list? He says it's all loss. It is all worthless. And so why would he say this? Why would all these things that he given his entire life to, his entire trust to, his entire identity to, why would it all of a sudden be worthless? Why should you look at anything else in your life? Not only these things, but he says everything in life is a loss. Why should you look at everything in your, in your life, the things you would normally place your confidence and trust in, your relationships, your job, whatever it is, why would you see those things as loss. And that brings us to truth number four. A Christ follower seeks to know Jesus. You see, everything else is lost in life compared to the value of knowing Jesus. So he says back in the passage, but again, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash, as garbage, in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So again, Paul's saying, whatever gain I had in life, Whatever it is that there has helped me to get in the head, it is all worthless compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Wow. I mean, if you and I can say that, and not just say it, but to truly believe it in our hearts and to live our lives that way, the rest of the world is going to look at us like we're nuts. For Paul, everything in life, especially his legalistic life before Jesus, but even everything is worthless compared to knowing Jesus. 
And so I want to kind of look at just for a second what this word means and what he's talking about. So, um, and, and this idea of knowing, because this is really the important piece that I want us to understand. And I'm going to mispronounce it because I don't know Greek and Hebrew, but the word to know comes from a Greek word, gnosko, and is deeper than simply a knowledge of something. Instead, it, it does mean to know, it means to become known, it means to have knowledge of, but it's also the same word that's used in, in the Hebrew Old Testament um, when it says something like, Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore him a son. And so this idea of knowing is a deeper, intimate, personal closeness that comes from a relationship through experience and time with another person. So this knowing isn't just, well, I know about God. I know all these things about him. I have all these verses memorized in my Bible. It's not that kind of a knowing. It's a personal knowing that's going to come from a true relationship with him where you are walking alongside of him throughout your life. So Paul is saying everything else in life that normally would have value is worthless when it comes to the value of intimately knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus. I think this goes back to a point that, that Jerry made a couple of weeks ago when he preached. He said, the glory of the gospel is to know and be known by Jesus. Relationship with Jesus is the point. So in reality, this could in truth be our, first, our fourth point, our fourth truth of the day. I think we could even go so far as to say that the entire point of the Christian life is to know and be known by Jesus. And then as we grow in our relationship with him, we should seek to obey him and to make him known to others. This should be our life goal. I think if I were to have an application point for the day, I think that's what it would be. The entire point of the Christian life is to know and be known by Jesus. And through that knowing, through that relationship, you're going to obey him and you're going to naturally give him away to others as well. Seek to know Jesus personally and intimately. There's a quote by a famous um, Christian author, theologian um, named J.I. Packer. So J.I. Packer actually passed away this past Friday at 93 years old. He's had tremendous effect on the um, Christian world. And so in one of his most famous works titled Knowing God, he said, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into their place of their own accord. So once you realize that the point is to know Jesus, be known by him, everything else just seems to fall into place. To know Jesus must be our primary goal of life, to know him by having a relationship with him. If you get nothing else from today, get this from today. A Christ follower should seek to know and be known by God, by Jesus. And we got a little bit more of our passage left. I still want to go over a few more things, but it's going to speak into this truth here. Looking back at verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that... I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, like these Judaizers, that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These verses, they sum up everything that Paul has been saying in this passage. So how do you know Jesus? What does this righteousness look like? What does that mean? This righteousness, another way of translating it is to say a right relationship with God. So Paul is telling us it is impossible to have a right relationship with God living a life of law-keeping, living a life of legalism. It's impossible. The only way to have a right relationship with God is to have faith in Jesus, what he has done. We must accept God's gift of grace, this free gift of eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, trusting in his finished work and the righteousness that he gives to us when we accept him and accept that free gift. And so if we can do those things, then suddenly the Christian life changes. Suddenly a relationship with Jesus becomes a freeing thing. And we no longer have to live a legalistic life where we're focused on obeying all the right rules, but instead we begin to view everything in life as an opportunity to know Jesus. And so then things like reading our Bible every day is not something we do because we're supposed to do it, but we read our Bible every day because it's an opportunity to know Jesus more, because it is the revealed Word of God. Suddenly, we no longer have to obey the commands of Scripture that Jesus has laid out for us because that's what a good Christian does. But we obey because it's an opportunity to know Jesus more. Living a life of obedience helps us to have that deeper relationship with Him. We don't go to church every week because that's what Christians are supposed to do every single week. We go to church because we have an opportunity to know Jesus more as we sing corporately together to Him and as we sit under the preached Word of God. And the same is true for the rest of this passage. We share in Christ's sufferings by being willing to suffer for his name and for the sake of the gospel in a world that will persecute the true followers of Jesus because through that persecution, we can better know Jesus and deepen our relationship with him. And we are willing to become like him in his death, a death that's described in chapter 2 that we've looked at the last couple of weeks where Paul says in chapter 2, verse 5 of Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, meaning be willing to live your life and view your life in this way. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with the thing of God to be grasped, grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus humbled himself by being willing to come to earth to live in this imperfect world, though he was perfect himself, and to die and be resurrected for us. He humbled himself. And so Paul says we should be willing to humble ourselves to this point, to that level, to see everything else in life as lost compared to the value of knowing and being known by Jesus. So this, this is our application point for today. This is where you go from here. And in fact, I think it is the entire point of the Christian life, to know Jesus and to be known by Him. 
So really the, the question remains for you is, is this true of you in your life? Are you willing to view your life in this way to see everything else, every choice in life as an opportunity to know Jesus deeply? To begin to no longer to desire what the world desires, whatever that may be, money, prestige, power, wealth, material pres- uh, uh, possessions, or even relationships as the most important thing, but instead to view our relationship with Jesus as the single most vital, important part of our lives. Because if you can make this your goal, knowing Jesus, then following him and obeying his word will become the most freeing part of your life. Because everything in the Christian life suddenly becomes an opportunity to know him. So similar to, to what we did last week, if you are here last week, I want to give us a little, a little time for this to just kind of sit and ruminate. So Maddie and the others are going to come up and they're just going to kind of play quietly in the background. I'm going to give us a few minutes to, to sit and to think because I don't want us to quickly walk away from this, to quickly walk away from the fact that that is the, the point of our Christian lives. And so I think for those of us in this room and, and those of us watching online, we're, we fall into one of two categories. So either we're, some of us, we don't yet have a relationship with Jesus And right now, potentially, God is speaking to your heart. And the truth is, salvation belongs to the Lord, and today is the day of salvation, and we should not ignore that. We have an opportunity to begin that deep and intimate relationship with Him. So if you fall in that category, there's people here willing to pray pray with you, I'm willing to pray with you. Take this time to think about that and to pray. And, And then there's another category for those of us that are here, and that's those that already have a relationship with Jesus. And so you need to sit and to pray and to think through, like, has this been true of my life? Am I living my life as if my relationship with Jesus is the most important thing? If so, great. Ask that God continues to work in that and through you. And if it's not, well, then now is the time for you to pray and to confess that to God, to say, you've not been the most important thing in my life. I've allowed so many other things to become so much more important than you. And you can confess that and repent that now in this moment. And you can ask him to help you to begin to view everything in life as an opportunity to know and be known by Jesus. So if you don't mind, take a few minutes, just bow your head, close your eyes, pray to Jesus. I'll give you a few minutes and then I will close us in prayer. And then I'll give you guys a chance to share if you're willing to share out loud. But go ahead and spend a few minutes in prayer.